morning and welcome to the Journey Church. Uh, my name is Landon, the worship leader here. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, whether you're a part of the body of Christ or not, we welcome you with open arms this morning. Let's go ahead and bow our heads as we pray this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for another morning you've given us, Lord. Lord, just be with us as we worship you. Fill us with the Holy Spirit and fill us up with your word this morning as we journey with you this morning and throughout the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand as we worship this morning.
come to save us. You have come to save us, Lord. You have made a way here. You have made the way clear. You have come to save us, Lord. Jesus, you're the Uh, and, 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 and to 
be forgiven and to know that we're forgiven. I think that's one of the greatest promises we have in Scripture is we can know that we are forgiven. And so we're going to come before the throne of God this morning. And we do this every week, uh, but this isn't just a, a ritual we go through here. Uh, coming to God should be a daily experience for us and seeking His forgiveness on our lives. So let's come and ask forgiveness this morning. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning, Father. Father, many days I, I feel like Isaiah, who, uh, who had a vision of standing before you and, and just realized how desperately in need he was of you and how he lived among a people uh, who reject you, people of unclean lips and unclean hands, and he felt completely stained before you. Father, we come to you this morning, God, um, with open hands and bended knee, acknowledging that, that we are sinners of the worst kind, and we are in need of your forgiveness every day. And so, Father, we humbly pray to you today and ask you to have mercy on us, O oh Lord, to forgive us of our many sins, and even the ways, uh, God, just this week or even this morning, Father, we have failed you miserably. Father, we pray that you continue to create in us a clean heart every day, renew a right spirit in us, that we might turn away from sin, turn towards you in your grace and mercy. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen.
you for everything you've given us. Thank you for walking on this journey with us, Lord. Lord, just help us to tell it to the masses and shout from the mountains, Lord, in your name. Help us to scream and sing and cry out hallelujah to you, Father. Even with everything that's going on right now, just help us to continue to be on this journey with you. And be thankful for everything, Lord. For we know what's going on, we know what you're doing, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Because of the peace and fellowship we have with Christ, we also have that with other believers. So go ahead and turn to your neighbor and greet one another, whether it's shaking hands or even just going an elbow. That's fine. So. Well, hey, good morning, Journey. How's everybody doing today? Man, this is a great day to be in God's house. Uh, we have the privilege of doing uh, what probably I, I would say is one of the greatest pictures we have, uh, or ordinances as we call them in the church, uh, and that's, that's baptism. Uh, we get to experience this, and, and I say experience it because even though those that are coming are participating in the act of baptism, it is also uh, a participation by the whole body. And so they're coming, uh, professing today that they are following Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. And so we have uh, two coming today uh, on profession of faith in baptism. Uh, and so I'm going to ask uh, Tanya, you want to come and join me uh, up here uh, in baptism? So I'm going to have uh, Jonathan's actually going to read their testimonies that they wrote uh, about their coming to faith. So Jonathan, go ahead and read Tanya's. Not raised in church and didn't know a whole lot about the Bible. Tanya realized that she needed to make a change in her life and stop making excuses. She expressed the need to stop being lazy and start putting Jesus first in her life. After all, he paid the ultimate sacrifice by dying on the cross for her sins. Tanya now follows Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, and he has given her the desire to want to live her life for him. Tanya admits now that her baptism as an infant in the Catholic Church was not legitimate because it was not believer's baptism. She now would like to be baptized as a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ. So Tanya, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, that he came to earth fully God, fully man, and that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, omnipotent God through whom all things are created and he holds all things together in perfect order. You believe in his Holy Spirit which causes us to be born again and now lives inside of you and do you commit to live your life and to grow in Christ every day of your life? Because you do this morning you are now a part of the family of God and we celebrate this and so we baptize you now. Tanya, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in baptism, raised to walk, in a new life with Christ.
So we also have Jessica coming this morning. So I'm going to ask Jessica if you'll come up here this morning. Um, she looked around like there's another Jessica in the room. There's only one that I know of. So, um, so Jessica's coming this morning uh, in baptism, confessing her faith in Jesus Christ. So would you read her testimony for us? Before Christ, I was a lost soul, worried and afraid of everything life threw at me. At times, I felt like the waves crashing over me, trying to drown me, unable to breathe at times. Sometimes along the lines, Jesus found means and has shown me great love and forgiveness. Since I have accepted Christ in my life, I can breathe. The waves no longer suffocate me. My anxiety is defeated and my heart has been restored. My life has changed for the better because of him and I'm ready to wall the, the path paved by Jesus Christ. Notice there's always a life before Christ and a life after Christ. So before Christ, we were lost and dead in our sins, and because of Christ, we are now alive in him. Jessica, you profess this morning that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, came in the flesh, fully God, fully man, and died for your sins. Yes. <laughs> you confess this morning that uh, God the Father created all things, and that he holds all things together and that he is right now holding you in perfect order. Yes. You confess and believe that the spirit that now lives inside of you has caused you to be born again, and it's nothing of yourself, but it's all of his call, calling and drawing you to himself. And do you promise to now live in the community of believers and to grow in your faith in Christ every day of your life? Yes. Because you confess these things, my sister, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Buried in baptism, raised to walk in new life with Christ. Had to make sure she got all the way under, you know. It's taught that in seminary, you know, you don't want just a partial baptism. It's got to be all the way under, right? Baptizo to immerse. Man, this is a great day. I, I tell you what, um, it's one of the things... Um, you know, that I miss the most. And some of these, I'll be honest with you, they've been waiting a while to be baptized. And with the coronavirus and everything going on, we have not done that. And I just, last week I said, we need to baptize. There's no reason we should hold off and uh, keep from doing that this morning. So, um, a call to action. What does it mean to be called to action, to be called up? I don't know if you've ever felt like... Um, as a child of God, that you've been called into something. You've been called into action. I think many times we understand as believers um, what we're being saved from, but we don't understand what we're being saved to. And so you're being saved to something pretty incredible this morning. So we've been walking through uh, the book of Judges, and I know it seems like we're kind of plotting. All right, we're fixing to pick up the speed because there's going to be a lot of chapters in here we're going to begin working through over the next several weeks. So this morning, we have a, a, a judge that is unlike the other judges we've talked about because she's a woman. And uh, so Deborah um, is, is one of uh, three judges that we read about in Scripture, but she's the only one in uh, the book of Judges. And so in response to Israel's great plea, remember last week we talked about they go through this cycle of things are going good, you know, uh, they have their judge, they have their savior, they have their hero, and then they kind of falter off, and then it says, and again, after about 40 years, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so they emerged out of this period, okay, 
And Deborah shows up on the scene. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm invite you this morning to open to Judges chapter 4. Okay, and I'm going to read part of what is going on with Deborah. We're going to begin in verse 4. So in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Judges, the writer writes, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel will come up to her for judgment. She sent the summoned Barak, the son of Abinadam, to Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking together 10,000 men from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon, and I will draw out your Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you at the river of Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give, you into, give them into your hands. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali, and Kadesh and 10,000 men went up at the heels of, of Deborah, who went up with him. Okay, so a couple of things are taking place here. So you notice Deborah's sitting under this tree, and she's judging Israel. Now, this is different. Uh, because the other judges, what would happen is the Lord would come on them, the Spirit of the Lord, and they would go into battle, they would fight for them. But now she's setting, and she's helping them solve problems, right, that are going on. She's judging them, because okay? she's helping them with all these problems. And, and so they're setting under this tree, and all these disputes are coming up to her, and there's this, there's this uh, uh, Israeli general, Barak, okay, and, and she calls him to her, you'll notice, and she says, hey, Gather the people of Israel together. About 10,000 men is all it's going to take. That's all you need, okay? But I want you to notice something. Go back up to the beginning of chapter 4. Look at the commander of, of the army of Sisera, who lived in Harash, okay? And it said, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. He had 900 chariots of iron, okay? I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but he had 900 chariots. And she said, about 10,000 foot soldiers are going to do it. That's all you're going to need. Okay, you don't, you don't need more or any less. Now, you've got to understand, by this time, the, the army, the half a million to million soldiers that they once had, they're all farmers. I mean, these guys have been obliterated. They've been torn apart. These people are not right now prepared to go to battle. I mean, they're out tending, doing under, under the, the reign of this, of this king with his 900 chariots, and they're no longer in commission in the army. I want you to consider times in your life when you feel helpless to face a challenge in front of you. Whether it's a moral enemy, whether it's a time uh, of, of trial that, that you know you're being put through personally, whether it's something you're going through in your family. How do you respond? How do you act? Is there an action that takes place in your life? See, we've been told plainly that the continued antagonisms at the hand of our enemies will fail. In fact, over and over, Scripture over and over says, your enemies will fall at your feet. It will fa they will fail. And even Deborah calls Barak, and she says, hey, 
gather up the enemies of the, or, or the armies of the Lord, about 10,000. I want you to go uh, to this river, okay, up to Mount Tabor, and I, I, God's going to give them into your hand. And he's like, only if you go with me. I mean, he's like, I want you in the front. I want you to lead the way. When does a man ever ask a woman to lead the way? Man, I think uh, probably not real often. Maybe we should do that more, <laughs> you know? Uh, because the thing is, I, I learned something this week. Um, is Well, I didn't learn it just this week. I think I always knew it. So women have a tendency to take care of about 10 or 15 things at once, right? They don't ever ask us to praise them for it or thank them for it. They just do it, right? Well, what happens to a man when he does something good, does something praiseworthy? He wants everybody to know it. <laughs> hey, by the way, I fixed the plumbing today. You should thank me for that, right? I mean, and that, so men typically want to be out front. They want to have that recognition. They want people to see them. But Barack, for whatever reason, he says, hey, I tell you what, Deborah, I'll go if you go. Now, there's a reason for this, I believe. First, she was the judge of Israel. She was the one that God had called, right, and put in that place. And I wonder if Barack thought, these men know there are 900 chariots waiting for me. They're not going to go if I ask them. But Deborah has been judging them. She's been fixing their problems. I think they'll trust her. I think they'll trust her to go. Here's our big idea this morning. Faith isn't just an attitude. It has to be applied. It's not just an attitude. I think sometimes we think faith is just an attitude we have. Oh, yeah, I have faith. I believe in God. I trust Him. But do we really? So it's not just an attitude. It has to be applied to our life. Because faith that's not applied isn't really faith at all. Um, so, so you think about the pessimism, pessimism of, of Brack, pessimism of the world today. We live in a very pessimistic age, and in this age, pessimism reigns. So I, I want you to think about as the drama unfolds, here's the players, list of characters. You have Jabin, king of Hazor and Canaan. He's a tyrant. You have Deborah, a Jewish judge, a woman of faith and courage. You have Barak, a reluctant Jewish general. You have Sisera, captain of Jabin's army. You have Heber, a Kenite neighbor at peace with Jabin. You have Jael, wife of Habor, handy with a hammer and a tent peg. And you have Jehovah God. Everybody goes, whoop, when they hear Jael because it's pretty, you're going to hear this. It's awesome. Jehovah God, and he is in charge of the wars and the weather. And he reigns over it all. A call to action is a call to optimism. A call to action is a call to be optimistic. I wonder, how optimistic are we really? I think most people by nature are pessimists. I think most people by nature, they want to test things out. So if you look at the bright side of things, you just might live longer, much longer, according to some researchers. They say if you just look on the brighter side of things, in fact, a new study finds women who characterize themselves as having the highest levels of optimism live 15% longer. Okay, so there's a reason to be optimistic. Okay, you'll live longer if you have a positive outlook on things, right? But, but I think it's even more than that. In fact, they say optimists, not only do they live 50% longer, but they say reaching the age of 85 is a very real probability. And the most optimistic men only live 11% longer. I don't know why, but maybe that maybe it behooves women to be more optimistic than men, right? But they'll live 70% longer. So one key seems to involve the body's stress response. 
to pessimism. Did you know it's more stressful to be pessimistic about things? To be pessimistic about the outlook on, 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 on your life and everybody around you? In fact, optimistic people say they sleep better. They, they have a more fulfilled and healthy life. In fact, a professor at the University of Illinois says optimists are more likely to engage in active problem solving and to interpret stressful events in a more positive way. I have always said that I believe Christians should be some of the most optimistic people in the face of the earth. Well, why is that? It's because there's a difference between just saying you have faith and really living that out. So if we live out the faith, if we, if we have the faith of Deborah who says, hey, God's going to give them into your hands. He's already told me that, right? He promised me that he would do this. He's already told me this. God never goes back on what he said he's going to do. So life is often troubling and dark, but our attitude is crucial. Have you ever noticed that? Christian's attitude is crucial, not only to the church, but to other people around you. Do we give thanks in all circumstances, or do we grumble and complain and wish things were different and better, right? Guarantee over the last three or four months, there's a lot of room to grumble and complain. Right? We could sit around and we could just moan, we could just grumble, we could just gripe about it. And I, I'm right there with you sometimes. I, I want to complain about this, and if they would just do this or this were that way, things would be different, and, and well, I don't know why they're doing that. And so you have all of this back and forth. See, God, godly optimism is the result of a faith in the character of God. So I think it all goes back to how do you look at God? What is God's character? Do we understand God's character? The thing is, Deborah knew something about God's character. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on Barak. I don't think it's not that he didn't have faith. I think he's a smart, smart general. He knew that if he took Deborah, that the men would follow them. When and how do we doubt what God has planned for us? So I want you to see the progression here. Okay, check this out. God has the perfect plan for you. Do you believe that? You believe God has a perfect plan for you, okay? So if he has the perfect plan, he also has the way to get it done, right? So he has the right leader to lead you, okay? And so I do believe God puts people in our life to lead us. There are spiritual leaders. There are people that lead us into that. But he also gives us the place to, to have it happen. And so the place here was on the battlefield. It was against 900 chariots. And the plan for his army was to follow into victory, right? Victory formation for nation of Israel. Let's go. Let's get the V. Let's go. It's victory, right? Have you, well, I don't know if any of y'all play football. I always remember learning the victory formation. Anybody know what that is in football? That's when you've already won the game, okay? And that's when you do the V, and, man, you're just going to hike, and you're just going to kneel on the ball. That's victory formation. I think many times we're not in that formation, are we? No. We know, in our mind, we know the battle's been won and that the Lord has won it. But man, we, we, we still want to fight for ourselves. We don't trust God. Notice it says that Deborah gives him the, the command of the Lord or what the Lord has told her. He said, I will give him into your hands. That's what Deborah says the Lord. They said, I will give them into your hands. See, the Bible refers to this kind of optimism. You know, there's another word in Scripture. You know what it's called? Anybody know? Hope, right? 
In Romans 5, it says that hope will not disappoint. It doesn't put us to shame. And so the Bible calls optimism hope. In fact, in Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters of Romans 8, 23-35, it says hope that is seen is not really hope at all. Who hopes for what is already seen? We hope for what we do not have, and we wait patiently. I mean, that, does that sound like hope to you? That's not what the world says hope is, right? They want to see it. I want to see it in action, right? I'll believe it when I see it. Just bring it here, show it to me, and then I'll have faith. I'll have hope in that. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. What God has prepared for you is beyond our understanding, okay? Our comprehension. I love at the beginning of Second Corinthians five. Sometime go read the whole, like the whole chapter of Second Corinthians five. At the beginning of that chapter, he says that that God has created you for the kingdom of God. He didn't create you for this world. In fact, it says that it is better that you leave this world. Okay, now that's hope. It's better that you're not here. It's better that you leave this earthly tent, this earthly body, and that you're with the Lord. So to be separated from the body is to be with Him. See, God has designed you to live with hope. And I'll and I put another little word there. He's done, designed you to live for hope. Okay? So what does the world see when they see you? They should see the most hopeful people in the world. Somebody should come up to you this week and say, Man, why are you always so happy? Why are you always... In, in, in such a positive mood in your life, right? Man, I'd wear this as a badge of courage. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have a bad day. That doesn't mean things always go your way. And we all get there. But see, worldly optimism is not based on faith. You know what it's based on? Many unbelievers refuse to worry because life is more pleasant uh, when they have the phrase, don't worry, be happy, right? If you're, did that come from Lion King? I don't remember. Okay, it's a song anyway. Yeah. Thank you very much, Bob Marley, some music fan out there. Okay, so, so they used to say that, or, or the other phrase that's been said throughout history is carpe diem, seize the day. Well, that's a worldly hope. That means you just seize it. You just make yourself happy. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about walking to work this morning and, and get your happy juice and just, I mean, everything's rainbows and clouds and fluffy bunnies. No, that's not the hope of God. That's not the way it works at all. In fact, Israel had, at this time, their army was decimated. They had no reason to have any hope. There was no reason for them to even want to go, at, go and fight. See, godly optimism looks beyond what we can understand. That's the hope of God. We look behind what we, beyond what we can understand. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't know. So our dear friends... Um, this week, uh, Elise Jacko, um, her father passed away, and uh, he was a lieutenant general, three-star general in the Air Force, used to work for strategic command. I mean, this guy was high up there. Uh, he's a believer, and, but he'd been in a wheelchair for years. And, um, and so Elise was sharing with me a little bit about her father, and I, I prayed at the before the memorial uh, visitation yesterday, and, and I sent her a message, and this is what I said. I said, Elise, because they're really, the, I think the hard thing is they haven't been able to see their dad because he's been in a nursing home, and with the COVID, they wouldn't let anybody in there. 
And she was really bitter and sad about that. And I said, Lise, I would not even pretend to understand why God chooses to take people at what time he chooses for them to leave this earth. I will never understand that. I don't understand God's time. But I can tell you this, that, that this time right here, okay, that where your father is today, okay, I, even though I don't understand, I don't comprehend what, what the kingdom of God fully looks like, I know that what we're promised, the great hope we're promised in Scripture is that He is now in a renewed state, a renewed body where there's no crying, no tears, no pain, no suffering, nothing to, to, to weigh Him down. And He is free of all that. And that's why in, in 2 Corinthians 5 it says we desire to be free of this body. Romans 8.28 said this is why we do not place emphasis on the earthly events and circumstances. So, so, so literally... God's hope looks beyond ourselves. It looks beyond us. Godly optimism is a choice we make. Did you know that? It is a choice. I mean, you can choose either to have that kind of hope and that kind of optimism. You can choose not to. See, when we choose to trust God for everything, we can rest in His promises. Even when we don't get it, we don't understand it. It doesn't fit our narrative. Have you figured that out? The Bible does not fit the narrative of the world. Don't expect them to understand it. I don't expect the world to get this. It doesn't fit their narrative. See, we, can't, we can cast, the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 7, all of our cares on Him. We can, we can let our requests be known to God, and we know He hears us and He cares for us. So Barak's desire to take Deborah with him was, was a really smart thing to do. Notice that Deborah assures a victory. Have you ever, in anything in your life, assured a victory? Have you ever assured a victory? Um, so Babe Ruth, one of the great baseball players of all time. And back then, I guess you, you didn't have to run around the bases fast because this guy doesn't look like he can run around the base. He's a big man. And so he gets up to bat. And they say he used to, he would, he would stop, step out of the batter's box, and he would point to the fence. Well, you know what he was saying? He said, I'm knocking this thing out of the park. Y'all better just get ready to go chase the ball. Because it's not, and, and inevitably, every time he'd step up, bam, knock it out of the park. How do we claim the victory that God has for us? Well, I think a call to action is always a call to victory. It's always a call to victory in our life. See, God goes before us, and he claims the victory. No, it says he claims that victory. Sorry, that's my little jacuzzi over here. It might go off every once in a while. So he claims the victory. How do, how do you claim that? See, that, that's why I said it's a choice we make to be optimistic. Do we claim that victory, okay? Or do we still sit back and we just wallow in our own grief and our own self-pride? See, God goes before us and he has already fulfilled everything. That's why Ephesians 1 says, from the foundations of the earth, right? He saved you. He gave you a rebirth before you were ever even a twinkle in your father's eye. God was planning all of this. Why? So you could say, "Woo, look at me. No, he did it for his glory alone so that God could be glorified. And that's what, that's what Deborah was saying. He said, God's going to get the glory anyway. And so, so Deborah said, I'll tell you what, the victory now is not going to be yours. He said, in fact, a woman is going to get credit in the history 
of, of the Bible for this great victory, but ultimately we know who gets the greater credit, and that's God. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, death where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The what? The victory through Christ, right? So note, when, when the perishable, that's, that's you, okay? In case you didn't know it, you're born perishable, okay? I mean, think, I mean, it's kind of gross if you think about it, okay? We have perishables in our house, but, I mean, does it, I, nobody puts an expiration date on me, okay? But we are. We are perishable. All of us have an expiration date, and, so, and we don't know when that is. There's a day that this life for you here on this earth is going to be done. That's why he says when the imperishable, that's you, puts on the imperishable, that is Christ, then we have victory. You have the ultimate preservative in your life. And it's Jesus Christ alone that preserves us. So how does the victory take place? Well, how did it take place for the disciples of Christ? Every one of them were horribly martyred for their faith, except for John that we know of. In fact, John was boiled in oil, and he didn't die history says, and they sent him to the island of Patmos where he wrote, many believe, the book of Revelation. Maybe that's why there's so many weird things going on in Revelation, but you know, he's, he's there isolated on this island. So how did that work out for them? See, the victory is won before we ever step onto the battlefield. This is huge. Think about this. The victory is won before you ever step on that battlefield. I mean, I would love to go into a sporting event, and before I ever step on the field, I could be like Babe Ruth and say, hey, we've got this thing won. It's in the bag. Now, we can, we can have a hopeful feeling. You know, I can feel like we're, we're good. We have the best team. We're going to succeed today. But that's not, that's not true, true optimism. See, the victory is won before you ever step on the field of battle. We marvel at the great wonders of God, but God is never surprised. Have you noticed that? God is never surprised. So look at this. Look at the enemy as they step onto the field. So um, in verse 14, And Deborah said, Barak, get up, man. Well, that's my paraphrase. Up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? Okay. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. Notice, it doesn't say the Lord just kind of beat him into submission. They didn't just kind of win. It said he routed them. He routed them. If you go over into chapter 5, and this is we're not going to read all of the song of Deborah and Barak, it talks over here in verse 4, it said, The Lord, when you went out from Seir and you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped and water flooded down. Now think about this. 
Where did God tell him to go meet them in battle? By a river in the valley. I meant to bring a picture. I've, I've, I've stood on that mount, Tabor, and looked down into the valley. And, and there's this river that runs through the valley. And it says that the earth literally shook. Can you imagine that? Because what do you, what do you think those 900 chariots thought when they came on the battlefield? They thought, man, we got this one. I mean, this is in the bag. Put this in our column for a win. And they said the earth shook and the heavens opened up. And, and I, I believe those waters flooded that whole valley. See, Yahweh has not gone out before you, it says in 4.4, has gone out before you, and so there will be a miraculous victory. Not yours, the Lord's alone. Um, so American patriots risk their homes for victory. In October of 1781, General Corn, Cornwallis marched his British troops into Yorktown. The patriots to the south of the wrecked havoc on this red coat army. And he was hoping to, to, uh, to re-invitalize the British Navy on Chesapeake Bay. American and French troops, however, anticipated Cornwallis's plan. And, and the cannon fire began to fall. While the French fleet cut off escape by sea, the British found themselves trapped. Thomas Nelson, then governor of Virginia and signer of the Declaration of Independence, was fighting with the Patriots, firing the cannonballs into Yorktown, gathering the men. He pointed to a beautiful brick home. That is my home, he explained. It is the best one in town. And because of that, Lord Cornwallis has almost certainly set up the British headquarters inside. And he told the American artillerymen to open fire on that house. They did. And the story goes that the very first cannonball shot at Mr. Nelson's house sailed right through the large dining room window, okay, and it landed on his table where several British officers were eating. It is one thing for a man to talk about freedom, and it is another thing to take up arms and get in the fight. I believe today is the day that Christians need to start getting in the fight. I believe one of the greatest problems in our church culture today is there are more Christians and more churches that are not in the fight. They've withdrawn. They've decided to go back behind their safety zone, their safe line, okay? And they've forgotten that there's a battle going on. And it is a battle for the hearts and the lives of souls. And souls that desperately need to know and trust in a living God. See, a call to action, and this is the third and final one, a call to action is a call to trust. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you truly trust? What do you truly put your faith and trust in? I want to give you the end of the story. It doesn't end there. So they routed all of their armies. says, but Sisera, like a weasel, okay, the, the leader of, of the enemy, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Canaanite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him up with a rug. And he said to her, she said to him, Please, he said, give me a little water. 
and, and, and she gave him some drink. He was thirsty. So she opened some skim milk up, gave him a drink, and she covered him. And he said to her, why don't you, would you stand outside? Would you stand outside this open door? Would you keep watch? And let me know if anyone is coming. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer. I, I just want you to picture this in her hand. Then she went softly to him, and she drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness until he died. I don't know what it takes to drive a tent peg through somebody's temple into the ground, okay? She didn't stop halfway. You can look at this in several ways. Some people are horrified when they read this. It's a horrific scene. I can't imagine just not only the death by tent peg, right, but the bloody mass of scene inside the tent, okay? And, and so I, I want you to see what happens after that, okay? So, so she's done this, and behold, Barak is still pursuing him. And Jael went out to meet him and said to him, hey, come. I think I know who you're looking for. Let me show you where he is. And she brought him into the tent. Second woman in the story. Second woman in the story saw a call for action. And she didn't sit on the sidelines. She decided to do something about it. See, our trust in God must first start with God's trustworthiness. Do we trust that God is who He said He is? See, Christian faith is essential. But trust in the person and character of God is even greater. In fact, Scripture emphasizes the importance of putting one's trust in God. See, this trust can't be, can't be swayed. And in fact, Psalm 27 says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but as for me, I trust in the name of the Lord my God. And I would ask you this morning, who do you trust? Do you really trust Him? And I would say many times, honestly, we probably don't. Because look at our lives. How do we prove that we are trustworthy? Proverbs 3, 5-8 says, Trust in the Lord. With all of your heart, do not lean on your own understanding, but all of your ways acknowledge Him. How do we trust God? See, even through Barak's big leap of faith to take Deborah with him into victory, he still was pursuing the one man who had got away. See, trusting in God's plan is trusting in His methods. And this is what is hard sometimes. Sometimes we don't trust His methods, right? His way of doing it. Then we talked about that last week. A lot of times we say, man, that's not the way I would have done it. Man, Lord, I wouldn't have done it that way. And, and we look at the tent peg through the temple. I mean, my gosh, right? And in fact, she, she, she sways him in. She's like, hey, just shut your eyes. You're tired. It's been a long battle. Just Man, women are vicious. Have you ever noticed that? I'm like, my gosh. You know, she just... She just wiled him in there and lulled him into this sense of, of calm and peace. And then, wham. See, we have to remember that God often uses people to do what the world is horrified at. He often uses people to do things that may even violate their personal comfort zone. I would venture to say this was way outside of jail's comfort zone. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> you know, because... Normal people don't just hammer somebody into the ground with a tent peg. That doesn't happen, right? See, God puts us outside of our comfort zone. See, our personal responsibility 
is to do what God has called us to do. See, trusting God's plan is trusting in His provision. That He's going to provide the way. And, then, and that's what happened. He provided the way. Not all the tribes went up to fight. Not all the tribes went up to fight. Did you know that? Not all of God's army was there. In fact, he rallied to Barak's banner some of the tribes, Ephraim and Benjamin did, and as did Issachar. But Reuben, you remember Reuben? If you've heard the story of Joseph, carried on herding his sheep. So did Gilead and Dan and Asher. They stayed home. They're like, I'm not going out there. They got 900 chariots. It's better here. I think I'll stay here. See, we live in a culture today that doesn't count the cost for following Christ. We'd rather use our methods and do it our way. Have you, ever, have you, have you figured that out? We'd rather use our methods. How, how, do I know, how do I know if I truly wholeheartedly trust God? I think that this is the number one way I think we can know. Do I let the Bible overrule my way of thinking? Think about that. Do I let this book overrule how I think? So how do you come to the Bible? When you come to read the Bible, see, I believe when you come to read the Bible, you can't come with your preconceived notion of what God should do. Okay, Because if I come to this book with all these preconceived ideas and I say, all right, I'm going to read this, but God, I've already formed my opinion, my idea about what you should do in that situation instead of listening to God. How do I, how do I know if I wholeheartedly trust Him? Do I let the Bible overrule my opinions? <laughs> okay, Because guess what? Hey, listen to me, church. I don't want you ever to follow my Mark's opinions. Ever. Okay? Don't follow my opinions. In fact, I, it, you'll notice I'm real shy. If somebody comes and asks what I think, I'm like, man, I don't know if I really want to share with you what I think. Because it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks. It matters what God says. I mean, does that mean I don't have an opinion? Absolutely, I, I have opinions, but I may not voice those with you. Because my opinions don't matter. It's what God thinks. If I'm reading the Bible for excuses and trying to find something that fits my opinion or my agenda or my ideas of what the world should do or the world should be like, guess what? I am going to be miserable because I will never find it. See, trusting God's plan is trusting in the cross of Christ. How many of you, if you were God, would kill your son and pour your wrath out on your son to save a world it's going to turn their back on you. How many of us would do that? Any takers? I wouldn't. It's not the way we would have done it. Chapter 5, if you read through um, the song, through the whole song, behind the scenes, all this going is celebrating the success and the honor uh, of a God who is worthy to be praised because He has won the victory. What does it mean to trust in the cross of Christ? Well, I think, I think it means a couple of things. First, God triumphs over evil. So this is, this is the ultimate optimistic. So I know in the end, right, that God is going to triumph over evil. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to stress about that. I don't have to stress if this person doesn't get elected or if this person would do this or if this person were in leadership or if this would happen, things would just be better. I mean, I don't want to be Debbie Downer this morning, but have you read the Bible? I mean, good grief. That's not going to happen, right? I mean, it's not. We live in a world full of sin. It's not going to happen. 
And even the best person is going to fail you. See, the victory is His alone. God triumphs over evil. The second thing is God will be vindicated. See, the coming judgment of God frees us from needing to see justice done now. If I wanted justice done now, right, in my time, the way I want it, see, God's vindication may not be seen in your lifetime. It may not be seen now, but I know at the very end it does. So the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes our attitudes towards the world and towards our enemies, okay? Change our attitude towards the world and the enemies. So, so we want to see justice done, and we know that it will, it, it, it will belong to God alone. But, but in the Old Testament, believers could only have a dim view of this. So, so see, when, when they went out to fight, they just had a dim view. All they had was Deborah leading the way, okay? I don't know, I don't know what you picture about Deborah, but, man, this must have been a tough lady, okay? Um, I, I don't, I, I kind of picture, I don't know, Wonder Woman or Xena, Princess Warrior or something, going out in front. It may not have been, right? But it, it's a good thought. And so she's heading out in front of the army of the Lord. And so the, the people that are following behind her, they only have a dim view of God's plan because who did he give that plan to? Deborah. He didn't give the Spirit to all of them. He didn't reveal this plan to all of them. See, see, I, I know that the cross of Christ that seems horrific to the world, and that's why, that's why Scripture bears out that it is foolishness to the world, but it's power for you in your life. I read the other day, and, and I wanted to read these to you, these prayers from Haitian Christians, and this is how they express their trust in God. I want you to read these, and I, and I want you to think about these, because these are coming from a, a very infant, childlike faith point of view. Okay? So here's the first one. Lord, all my life, I have been just a weed. <laughs> I have now become a flower. I'm young, and I want to grow and be cultivated so I can become more beautiful for you. Lord, in Christ, we are a grain of corn. Okay, this is a farming community, by the way. In a clear bottle, Satan comes like a chicken, and he pecks for the corn, but never reaches it, because God's got me. Lord, how glad we are that we don't hold you. You hold us. Lord, don't let us put our load of troubles in a basket on our heads. Help us put them on Jesus' head. Then we won't have headaches. <laughs> Can we trust Him? Can we trust God with, with everything? Remember that faith is not just an attitude. Okay, It's not just an attitude. It's not just a thought. It's not just an idea you have. It must be applied daily to your life, to my life to have the victory. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that daily, Father, that we would apply the faith in your gospel. And it wouldn't just be um, words we say or, or rhetoric or something we just speak in church or around Christian circles, but God, that we would, we would have the faith to believe and trust what you say. We believe and trust that you have gone before us from the foundations of the earth, that you have been moving in front of us all the time, that you are always 
you're always where we're going, Father. And you're always where we've been, and you're always where, where we're going to be. Why would we ever doubt that? Why would we ever fail to trust in your great presence and your great power? So, Father, I pray in the days to come, the days that we fail you and we fail to trust your plan and we try to go out in front of you and pave our own way, Father, have mercy on us, Father. Remind us, Father, that you are making us into your holy temple and that we would rest in the fact that you've already won the victory. The victory is yours, O Lord. And the earth trembles and shakes beneath your feet as you come into the wine press. You're coming back to judge the living and the dead and to take your children to be with you for all eternity. We love you for that and we praise you for that and we thank you. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. I want to share something with you this morning. So faith in Christ is not just an idea. For the majority of the world, that's all it is. It's an idea. It's not a reality. Because most people trust in themselves. They think, man, I can, I can be good for God. I can do enough things to live better for Him. I can do all of these things in my own power. And, and it, that may work for you for a little while, but I want you to know in the long run, it's going to fail you. Scripture says that we can only have true faith in the living God who sent His only Son to die for us on a cross. And it's only through receiving that mercy and that grace on our life that we are saved. And we're able to live in victory. And so we have to first realize that we are a sinner. Maybe we don't rest there long enough that I am a sinner in need of God's grace. Remember, I've always said you've got to get lost before you can get saved. If you don't understand you're a sinner, you don't understand you need His grace. And maybe you're there this morning. You understand you're a sinner. If you're listening out there um, on, on, our, on our feed this morning, you're a sinner and you know it. The only response you can have to bring victory into your life is to bend the knee before a holy God and ask Him to forgive you of your sins and to come into your life and save you. So my prayer this morning is that that's what you'll do and that you'll gain the victory this day on the battlefield that you're living in. Please stand up as we worship this morning.
so grateful and thankful that you've been here this morning. So just a, a couple of things to be watching for in uh, just way of some announcements this morning. Uh, so we're going to be having uh, fairly soon uh, another Discover the Journey class here. Um, this is our membership class for new people to the journey. Uh, I believe it's going to be um, the last Saturday uh, in August. Um, I'll check that and make sure. Um, and it, it's, it's just a, like an hour-long class that we have here on a Saturday morning. Uh, we'll have some child care available and some other things uh, that day. So we want to invite you, if you're new to the journey and uh, just getting here, we'd love for you to come and partner and be a part of the ministry and the fellowship here as well. So, um, so we pray that you have a good week. Live a life of victory. Know that your faith is not dependent on you, that God has already gone before you, and he has secured the victory for you. Let me pray for you. Father, God, I pray that you send us out of here this morning, Father, with your word on our lips, your word in our hearts, God, and the power of the gospel in our feet to go to a world, Father, that doesn't know you and proclaim that you have won the victory over sin and death for all time, for our lives. We love you, God, and we pray all these things in your amazing name. Amen. God bless you. This is.